Well, the name Mike Lindell is probably not familiar to you, but I bet most of us have seen one of his infomercials. Ever see, ever see the MyPillow infomercial? Okay, Mike Lindell is the CEO of MyPillow. First time I saw that ad, I thought it was kind of quirky. You know, a grown man hugging a pillow like it's a teddy bear and uh, talking about how this pillow could change my life. But I read about him and I discovered that his business success is anything but quirky. It, it all started a number of years ago. He had gone out and bought himself an expensive pillow. And that night, the pillow had flattened out as he slept, and he woke up with a sore neck, and he thought, i got to build a better pillow. So he mortgaged his house, and he built a pillow factory, and he started experimenting with different kinds of filling, 90 different kinds of fill, until he found just the right, you know, the right amount of filling, right type of filling. Uh, but he couldn't sell the, the pillow to any of the local stores. Nobody was interested. So he went on TV with his infomercials, and since then, over 25 million pillows have been sold. He's got 1,500 people working for him. So, so why, why are pillows such a popular item? Well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? There are millions of people out there who are looking for a good night's sleep. I mean, just Google sleep deprivation sometime and see what you find. Uh, you will quickly discover that Americans aren't getting enough rest. And the experts say this is not a minor problem. This is a big deal because sleep deprivation can lead to depression or weight loss, car accidents, memory loss, heart disease, lack of sex drive, poor decisions, and so on. Oh, oh, did I say weight loss? Weight gain. So if you thought you were going to lose weight, <laughs> losing sleep... Forget it, all right? So we desperately need more rest. And so that's the focus of our study in God's Word today. Now, not so much physical rest we're going to be looking at, a different kind of rest whose byproduct is physical rest, but it's a kind of rest that Jesus referred to in Matthew chapter 11. It's soul rest, rest for your soul. So if you brought a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Matthew Matthew chapter 11. Matthew is the first book in the second half of your Bible, what we call the New Testament. And it's one of four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, if you're following the Bible Savvy reading schedule, and I know hundreds of you are following along, we just started the fourth gospel together, the gospel of John. But today we're looking at gospel number one, Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. While you're looking for Matthew 11, uh, let's give a shout out to our campus that's celebrating a grand opening today. Uh, DeKalb, we are so happy for you. Congratulations. <laughs> and uh, I want to say to those of you who are joining us in DeKalb right now, Sue and I were out there on Friday night for the Harvest Fest, had a wonderful time, and felt so badly that you guys got the outdoor activities rained out yesterday with all that gloomy weather. But we know right now in DeKalb, with your doors open wide, there's a lot of celebrating going on. So uh, congratulations. This is the first sermon in a three-part series we're calling RSVP. RSVP, Responding to Jesus' Invitations. And I got the idea for this series from my, uh, from my college roommate uh, who lives in Colorado now. And we were on the phone a few months ago and he said, Jimmy, I've been reading uh, through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and I can't believe how many times Jesus uses the word come. C-O-M-E. It's, it's an invitational word. And I got to thinking about that. It's pretty extraordinary. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, invites me and, and you again and again and again to come and do something with him. So what is Jesus 
offering. Uh, you know, he wants us to re respond to RSVP, but what is it we're saying yes to? Well, today we're going to take a look at rest, Jesus' offer of rest. I'd like to read to you the passage, and then I'm going to give you a three-step response to this invitation. So follow along in your Bible as I'm reading Matthew 11, verses 28 and following. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There's our rest word. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. And thank you, God, not only for your word, but your desire to give us rest. So three steps to your response. If you want this rest, step number one is this, and if you're filling in your outline, you'll find an outline in your program. I encourage you to do that. Number one is to recognize your restlessness. To recognize your restlessness. Look again at the opening line of today's scripture verse, uh, scripture text, and you'll see the invitational word come, C-O-M-E, come. Jesus says to a large crowd of people, all you who are weary and burdened, come and I'll give you rest. So this is an invitation from Jesus that we probably won't respond to if we don't see ourselves as weary and burdened. See, the only people who pursue rest are those who recognize the restlessness. The only people who pursue rest are those who recognize their restlessness. So do you see signs of restlessness in your life? You know, are you in touch with the agitation in your own soul? Now, let me scroll through four common causes of this rest, restlessness and see if you can identify with them. Okay, no, number one, guilt. guilt. Guilt produces a restless soul. Now, we talk a lot about false guilt in our cult culture today. We warn each other, you know, don't, don't fall for bogus guilt. Don't feel guilty when you're not guilty. You know, don't let somebody else guilt trip you. Okay, I, I, I get all that, but what about when we've done something wrong, something that's hurt somebody else? What, what about when we feel guilty for good reason? What are we to do with that guilt? Are we to ignore that guilt? Uh, I, I get a magazine every week, a little brochure-type magazine from my town of Batavia telling me about upcoming events for the month. And there is an advice columnist who contributes an article every month. And recently I was reading his article and he was talking about a guy who called in and he, he said, you know, I've, I'm just going through a painful time in my life, a broken relationship, and uh, somebody I dearly love has accused me of wrongdoing. And I, I feel badly about it, I feel guilty about it, but I'm not sure what to do. So let me tell you what the response of the advice columnist was, and you see if you agree with the advice. He says, as we talked, I felt a huge discrepancy between his core goodness and the person he feared he might be. I asked if he could acknowledge his kindness and his generosity, despite his fear and confusion. I mean, aren't you really a good person, I asked. Well, I'm far from perfect. I make a lot of mistakes, he replied. Well, we all do, I said. But it sounds like you do what's right as often as you can. And so the longer we talked, the stronger his voice became. Fear and sadness slowly faded and a sense of calm emerged. So he calmed this guy, but was it good advice? You know, if, if we're restless from guilt, should we just focus, as this guy wrote, on our core goodness? Well, well for starters, the Bible tells us we're not good to the core. 
In fact, just the opposite. In Romans 3, verse 23, it says, all have sinned and so fall short of the glory of God. We don't meet God's standards. King David personalized it this way in Psalm 51. David said, I know my transgressions. Hey, my sin is always before me. Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David says, I've been a sinner from the get-go, from day one. Okay, I'm I'm really good at this because uh, it's, it's part of who I am. So we're not all sweetness sweetness and light, friends. We regularly do things that hurt ourselves, that hurt others, that hurt our relationship with God. So so if we sense an agitation in our soul created by this guilt, isn't this an appropriate feeling? I mean, if if we don't, what do we call people who don't feel guilty when they've done wrong? Don't we think of them as kind of a little bit sick? We call them psychopaths. It's, it's really healthy to recognize the restlessness of our guilt. It's healthy to ask ourselves, how can I find rest after we've done something wrong? You know, af- after I've gossiped about a good friend, after I've reamed out my kids, totally lost it. You know, after I've vegged out on porn, after I've turned a blind eye to the poor, after I've lied to my best customer, after I've spent myself into debt, I need rest from guilt. I need rest from guilt. Guilt is a common cause of restlessness. A second common cause is insecurity, and this this insecurity follows on the heels of our guilt. Stop and think about it. Whenever we do something wrong about somebody else, don't we sort of intuitively know that we got to do something to work our way back into their good graces? So if you're a husband and you've fought with your wife, you show up at home with a bouquet of flowers right? Or, or, or if you're a student, a high school student, and you flunked a test because you didn't study for it, then you suck up to the teacher by writing an extra credit paper. Okay? If you've if you got a customer that you weren't paying attention to and you, you nearly lost the account, you, you give them a couple of Bears tickets. Maybe not this season, okay? Maybe, find something else to give them this, this season. Hey, if you're, if you're living with a roommate and you borrowed their car and you took it out and you put a dent in it, you're the one who's doing the dirty dishes in the apartment every day this month, right? You know instinctively you've got to do something to work your way back into the good graces of that person because the relationship has been jeopardized. And we do that in our relationship with God too, don't we? We try to work our way back into God's good graces. We know when we've done wrong, so now we've got to do a corresponding amount of good. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were famous for this sort of approach, and they taught it to their followers. They said, you got to do this and this and this and this and do this and this and this and this, and maybe, maybe you'll find God's favor. And so in G- Jesus, later on in the book of Matthew, Matthew 23, verse 4, he's speaking to these religious leaders, and he says, you tie up huge bundles, you know, burdensome loads, and you put them on people's shoulders, and you don't lift a finger to help them. Do this, do that, do that. No no wonder the people who are listening to Jesus with religious leaders like that, no wonder he says to these people in Matthew 11, are you weary and burdened? Maybe you know this feeling yourself. You feel a bit insecure in relationship with God. Yeah, you know you're a sinner, But you know you've done a lot of good, and so you're wondering, how do I know when I've done enough good to offset the bad? How how do I know when I finally appease God? How do I know when I'm out of God's doghouse? 
insecurity. Insecurity. Here's a third common cause of restlessness. Uh, Yeah, third common cause of restlessness, emptiness. Emptiness. Uh, Blaise Pascal, a famous French mathematician and philosopher. By the way, those of you who know French, I said in the last service, blasé, Pascal. I thought it was pretty cool, and someone said, that's not French. That's, uh, so Blaise, okay, the dude's name is Blaise. Blaise Pascal, a famous French mathematician and philosopher, he made uh, an observation. You probably heard this before. He said, every one of us has a God-shaped vacuum in us, and that's why only God can fill it. See, it's God-shaped. Only God can fill it. But here's the problem, friends. We are, we are constantly trying to fill this God-sized vacuum with other things. And we're not even aware that we're doing it, but where do you think FOMO comes from? See, you know what FOMO, fear of missing out, it's a chronic problem in our culture. We cram our lives full of everything we possibly can't because we fear missing out on something that could float our boat. So party invitations come and we go, yeah, 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 yeah. 30% off sale at Kohl's, let's go. Kids sports, why do one when they could do three or four or five? Weekend getaways, anytime there's three empty days on the calendar, we're jumping in the car or the plane. Video games, yes. Another baby, yes. Season tickets, sure. Glass of wine, oh, let's go for the whole bottle, yes. Promotion at work with more travel, well, yes, 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 yes. And we keep adding things because we don't want to miss a thing. And little do we realize that this relentless pursuit of more, 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 more stems from our God-shaped vacuum that never gets filled because only God can fill it. And truth is, even when we think, some of you think you got it filled today with something else, but what you'll soon discover is that something else won't be able to fill you permanently. It's only a matter of time. You know, you throw a big wedding for yourself and you say, filled. And then the reality of married life sets in and it's, it's not all bliss. You know, you bought a new iPhone, filled, and now there's a new, new iPhone out there. You know, you played soccer from the day you could walk and you played through grade school and you played through middle school and high school and now as you're going off to, to, to college, you're so sick of soccer, you don't want to see another soccer ball in your life. Yeah, there was a big blockbuster movie you wanted to see and you look forward to it and now, now that movie is a month in your rearview mirror and like, so what, right? You make a, a best friend forever and now... Your BFF has found a better friend. (laughs) Emptiness. We are constantly trying to fill a hole that only God can fill. And it's leaving us restless. Let me give you a fourth common cause of restlessness. I call it vulnerability. Vulnerability. Just when we think that life is exactly where we want it to be, something happens to upset the apple cart. And we painfully realize that life is never safe. You experience that? Life is is never safe. Imagine yourself one of the original listeners of what Jesus says here in Matthew 11. Come to me and find rest. You're a first century peasant in Israel. You talk about vulnerability, you have no idea where your next meal's coming from. There is no health care. Back then, the government, if you're leaning into the government and depending on them, it's a tyrannical Roman government. 
No wonder they felt weary and burdened. It was their, their vulnerability in everyday life. And we all know that feeling that we can't control things. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture, a famous picture, uh, when JFK was assassinated. There was a car of Secret Service agents riding behind his limo, and one of them immediately jumped out and jumped under the back under the trunk of JFK's limo and tried to shield him from any additional gunshots. His name's Clint Hill. Uh, Clint has just written an autobiography called Five Presidents because he has been assigned to five uh, different presidents to, to guard them. And uh, I'm in the middle of the book right now, and in, in the book he tells not only of Kennedy's assassination, but of another tragedy that happened in JFK's life shortly before that. Uh, at the time, JFK was riding high, super popularity, just enormously popular. He went on a tour of Europe, European cities, and in every city his motorcade was mobbed for miles. Hundreds of thousands of people came out to cheer and say, long live Kennedy, and so on. While he's on this European tour, he's able to meet with the Pope, the first Catholic president, a personal audience with the Pope. He comes back home and he, he discovers along with Jackie that she's pregnant, she's going to have a third child, and they're, they're ecstatic about it. This is going to be only the second baby in history born to a sitting president. And the, the previous one had been born back in the 1800s. So this is a big deal. There's much anticipation until the day little baby Patrick arrives. But he's born prematurely, and they can't keep him alive. And Clint Hill tells about how they, you know, disconnected the baby from the tubes and the wires and handed him to the president. And John F. Kennedy held his son for the first and last time. And Clint Hill observed he was president of the United States. He was president of the United States, but in those hours, he was simply a husband and a father. See, even a president often referred to as the most powerful man in the world, is vulnerable. Now, do doesn't your own vulnerability make you restless from time to time, even when everything is going great? Aren't you aware that things could fall apart at the blink of an eye? So you got guilt over sin. you got insecurity. How much do I need to do to get my way back into God's good graces? you got emptiness because of this God-shaped vac vacuum. You've got vulnerability. See, maybe you have never recognized before, maybe you've never put your finger on your restlessness, but I tell you, friend, once you do, Jesus' invitation, come to me and I'll give you rest, means so much more. You say, yeah, this is exactly what I want. This is what I need. So how do you respond to Jesus' invitation? Come to me and find rest. Number one, recognize your restlessness. Step two, unite with Christ. Unite with Christ. Now go back with me to Matthew 11. I want you to see a repeating expression that Jesus uses here. Okay, One of the Bible study uh, tips that I've given you in the past, when you're reading your passage for the day, you're following along in our daily Bible reading schedule, always look for repeating words or ideas. So in the short paragraph we read today, first line of verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you. You drop down to the next verse, verse 30, opening line, for my yoke is easy. So if you got your own Bible, you want to circle my yoke and, and my yoke. Now, if we lived in a first century farming culture like Jesus' listeners did, 
we would have an immediate picture in our minds of what he's talking about. If you're going out to plow your field, okay, and you happen to have not just one, but you're fortunate enough to have two oxen, then you know how important it is to yoke them together, or they, they won't work in unison with each other. They'll, they'll be working against each other. So you put this, this wooden beam, this cross piece, over their necks and attach it. That's a yoke. This is what we call today, we call synergy. I don't know if you've heard that word before. It's become kind of a, a popular word. According to the dictionary, synergy is when two forces working together produce a combined effect that's greater than the sum of their separate parts. So a yoke in Jesus' day created synergy. Well, friends, Jesus invites us to yoke up with him. And something amazing happens when we do that. Something that wouldn't happen. Something gets accomplished that wouldn't happen if you were working on your own. Have you ever yoked up with Christ? Have, have you ever be un, been united with Jesus? Uh, the, the Apostle Paul, who wrote nearly half of our New Testament, he wrote 13 letters, we call them epistles, and in his 13 epistles, one of, one of his favorite expressions, he repeats again and again and again and again, he uses the expression, with Christ, with Christ, with Christ, with Christ. And Paul, Paul teaches that when you surrender your life to Jesus, okay, when you deliberately, consciously surrender your life to Christ, you are united with Christ. A supernatural union takes place. And Paul says there are two sides to this union. Now that you're with Christ... Okay, side one is that I now live in him, and side two is he now lives in me. Okay, I've surrendered my life to Jesus. Side one, I live in him. Side two, he lives in me. Let, let, let me explain the difference in those two sides and how each contributes to our rest, our soul rest. Okay, side one, I surrender to Christ. I'm united with him. I now live in Christ. That means, friends, that everything that's true of Jesus is now true of me because I'm in him. That means that everything Jesus accomplishes is credited to my account because I'm in him. So maybe an analogy would help here, okay? If I'm on Jesus' baseball team, okay, it's not the Cubs, it's Jesus' team, all right? And Jesus hits a home run, I win. If I'm on his team, if I'm in Christ and he hits a home run, I win. Now, Jesus has done something much better than hitting a home run. And scripture says that Jesus died on the cross to pay sin's penalty. Okay, here's the bad news. The bad news is our, our sin, our wrongdoing deserves death. And the reason is our wrongdoing is rebellion against God who's the giver of life. So you rebel against the giver of life and you deserve death. Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin and the penalty is death. So, so is that true now? Did he die to pay your penalty? Well, it depends. Are you on his team? See, if he hits a home run and you're, not a, you're playing for a different team, what good does it do you? But if you're on his team and he's hit the home run, then it's credited to your account. If he died on the cross and you're on his team, if you're in Christ, then the penalty has been paid for you. See how this works? See how this takes care of the first two causes of restlessness? You got guilt, Jesus paid for your sins. You've got insecurity, how will I ever do enough to work my, my way back into God, God's good graces? You don't have to, Jesus did it for you. 
So that's side one. I am in Christ. When you surrender to Christ, you're united with him. I am in Christ. The side two is that Christ is in me. This is equally an amazing truth. Christ, the all-powerful Son of God, lives in me. So to illustrate what I'm saying here, I'll use a story that I use all the time because I love it. It's a little mouse, a little field mouse, and a big elephant, his buddy. They're traipsing through the jungle one day. And they come to this deep ravine, and there's a rickety wooden bridge that crosses it. And so the two of them walk across, and as they're walking across the bridge, it's swinging violently from side to side. And they, they get to the other side, and the little mouse turns to his buddy, the elephant, and he says, didn't we make that thing rock and roll? Now, you follow the illustration, the mouse didn't do a thing to move that bridge. It was the elephant that made it sway. So when, when I surrender my life to Christ, when I become united with him, when Christ comes to live on the inside, live in me, he comes as the all-powerful son of God. And so Christ's presence in me, it banishes the other two causes of restlessness in my life, emptiness, vulnerability. So how can I be empty? You know, when... Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has filled the God-sized vacuum in my life. So it doesn't depend on the activities and accomplishments and achievements and acquisitions and so on. It depends on Jesus filling the void. Now, just, just as an aside here, sometimes people who surrender to Christ, we forget that in the course of busy days, and we're still trying to fill our, our lives with other stuff that, that can't fill the hole that only Christ can fill. We should be leaning into him, developing our relationship with him, letting him fill the vacuum. But he'll do it. He fills the emptiness. He lives in me, and he takes care of the vulnerability because Christ lives in me. Everywhere I go, he goes. Every tragedy I face, he faces. He's there. Every, pro every problem that you're facing right now in your life and you're thinking, oh, God, show up, he's shown up. If you've surrendered to Christ, he's living on the inside. You get it? good. Christ in me. Union with Christ. Are you united with him? He says that's how we experience rest. You surrender to him. You become united with him. You live in him. He lives in you. Is that true of you? Do you know that to be a fact in your life? Has there come a moment when you, you surrender to him and you now realize I'm united with Christ? Now, there were two kinds of people who, who heard Jesus' original offer of rest. Go back to Matthew 11. I want to look at the context, okay? We began at verse 28. Back up to verse 25, and you'll see who Jesus is speaking to here. It says, at that time, verse 25, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, he's praying, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So when Jesus offered soul rest to his original audience, there were two kinds of people in the crowd. The first group who rejected his offer, he refers to as the wise and learned. Well, they, they were wise and learned in their own eyes. You know, they, they were too smart to surrender to Jesus. They, they felt they could handle things on their own. The second group, however, responded, look at the verse again, like little children. You see that? that that's not a put down. That's actually a compliment. Little children doesn't mean that they were immature, that they were naive. Jesus is saying, you're trusting, you're willing to surrender to me. 
So, so which group are you in? Are you in the wise and learned group? Still too smart to surrender to Christ. Because you will experience ongoing restlessness in your life. Or have you become like a child, trusting, willing to depend, willing to surrender your life to him and find rest? Rest. Unite with Christ. Okay, recognize your restlessness. Number two, unite with Christ. Number three, do good. Do good. Uh, while the concept of soul rest is very appealing, no doubt to many of us here today, those of you who are watching uh, online, some of you may be a bit concerned about a possible downside to this invitation. I mean, you're not so sure you want rest because rest sounds a little bit like, well, like boredom, right? Like monotony. So you don't want a life that is void of excitement and adventure and fun. Let me tell you something about boredom, okay? Some years ago, I was traveling in Europe, and while I was in Paris, I happened to run into this uh, fellow, meet a guy from the United States. He had recently retired, and he had moved to Paris, and he had begun a job with an international mission organization. And uh, he was learning French at the time. You know, here's this guy, his late 60s, early 70s, learning French. And I said to him, this is years ago, I was a little more brash, I said, aren't you a little old to do this? I said, you, know, you moved to a different culture. You're learning a brand new language. You got this, you know, this job, a lot, a lot of uh, activity going on here, hard job to do. And he said to me, he said, well, you know, for years I worked a regular job looking forward to retirement because I thought I'm going to retire, I'm going to move to Florida, and I'm going to play golf every day. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I retired, I moved to Florida, and I played golf every day. And it was so boring. And so here I am serving God, and it's anything but boring. Now, that story came to my mind this past week because I was studying the context for Jesus' invitation, come to me and I'll give you rest. Is, is rest boring? You know, well, we, we need to look at the context. Now, oftentimes when we're looking at context, we're talking about historical background for a passage. But context also means you look at the passage right before the one you read and you look at the passage right after the one you read. So it gives you a sense of where the passage you're, you're reading, where it fits. So in chapter 11, we've been looking at Jesus' invitation, come to me and find rest. Let me tell you what happens right after this. In the next chapter, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus goes to the synagogue one day and he sees a man there with a shriveled hand. Now, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are watching Jesus carefully because they know Jesus can't resist healing somebody. And if he heals this guy, this guy they're going to be really honked off. You say, why would they be upset if Jesus healed a guy? Well, it was the Sabbath day. It was the day of rest. Okay, and commandment number four says, on the Sabbath day, you're not to do any work. You're, you're to completely rest. And if Jesus heals this guy, he's going to be working. He's not going to be resting. He's going to be a Sabbath breaker, a commandment breaker. Commandment number four, violator. They got him. So look at how Jesus responds. If you got your Bible open, this is next chapter, Matthew 12, verse 11. Jesus said to the religious leaders, hey, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath... Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Well, how much more valuable, valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful to do good on this, you know, this day of rest. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. I think Matthew tells us this story right after Jesus says, come to me and find rest for a reason. He doesn't want us to misinterpret what Jesus means when he, he talks about rest. He doesn't want us to think that rest means uh, you know, vegging out in front of the TV or going to get a pedicure or something. Okay. J Jesus says to the religious leaders that it's on the day of rest, it's a good thing to do good. So th th this is what brings your soul rest, Jesus says, to do good. Now, is there application for us today? Of course there is. See, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we become aware of the fact that it had nothing to do with our good works. It takes care of our guilt, takes care of our insecurity. It's all what Christ has done. And so it's easy to conclude, well, then good works don't matter at all for the life of a Christ follower. Jesus did it all. Okay, the, the Apostle Paul corrects that assumption in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Now, initially, it doesn't sound like he's going there. It sounds like he's going to reinforce this, this idea that you don't have to do anything because Christ did it all. In verses 8 and 9, many of us are familiar with these verses, Jesus says, it's by or Paul says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Paul says, here's how you get right with God. Here's how you're saved. You're saved by putting your faith in Christ, by surrendering to him. It's not by works. So again, you're liable to conclude, well, then good works have nothing to do with the Christian life. Now keep reading. Verse 10, how does Paul continue? He says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do, say it with me, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, if we've surrendered our lives to Jesus, Paul says God has a whole list of good works that he's designed you, 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 me to do. Those good works won't wreck your rest. They will enrich your rest. It's kind of counterintuitive, friends. But if we don't do these, uh, these good works that Jesus talks about, if we try to get our rest by always watching TV or playing golf or do, doing what, we're not going to be refreshed. We're going to find ourselves aimless. So what are the good works that God has designed for you to do? Well, if you're united with Christ, if you're going where he's going, because I now live in Christ and Christ took care of a needy man who he had a desperate need. Jesus served him by healing him. You know, it begs the question, who in your life needs to be served? You know, how does this look in your family if you live to serve your family? You live to do good to your family members because it brings rest to your soul. How does it look with respect to your friends? You're not just hanging with them, but you're thinking in terms of how do I serve you because it brings rest. How about desperately needy people? How about the guy who needed the healing, the shriveled hand? Do you know any desperately needy people? If you don't, some of them are right under our noses. We just never, we go through our day and we don't even see them. But if we need, need a connection with desperately needed, 
uh, needy people, Christ Community can help out. We got this community impact ministry, and we'll connect you with people in nursing homes or people in homeless shelters or uh, kids who need uh, tutoring at school, you know, women, unwed moms, you know, crisis pregnancy centers. I mean, the, the desperate needs are all around us. And, and, and Jesus is teaching here in, in Matthew, coming to me and finding rest doesn't mean you sit back in your recliner and you do nothing. In fact, the real rest of soul comes when you do good. You know, we talked earlier in our service, in our announcements about this 40 days of life coming up. Here's an opportunity to do good. You want rest for your soul? You know, the whole community is rallying. Churches around the community are uh, you know, getting people to go and pray outside Planned Parenthood over a 40-day period. The Planned Parenthood down in Aurora were over 40 lives. Little unborn babies are snuffed out every month. Every month. It's the third busiest abortion clinic in the country, and it's right here in our backyard in, abortion, in, in Aurora. And so we're inviting you. Christ Community Church is going to be part of this 40 days of life. We're owning two days. We're owning the 19th and the 25th of this month, this coming Thursday and the following Wednesday. And all we're asking you to do is come pray for half an hour across from that abortion clinic. You say, that sounds kind of tiring, getting in the car, driving down there, standing outside. But Jesus says, this is the rest that I'll give your soul if you'll do good. If you'll, do, if you'll do good on behalf of those little unborn babies and their moms that are about to make a tragic mistake that's going to scar them for years to come. By the way, in St. Charles, we've got a sign-up in the atrium lobby, a great big, on the window, you'll see a great big sign-up list. Just choose a half-hour slot for you or your family or your community group. Do good. Find rest. You know, the last thing I'll point out, and then we're going to bring things to a close here, Jesus did good to this man on the Sabbath, you know, at a worship service, so to speak. And it's quite possible that the opportunity to serve is right here in front of you at a weekend as we gather for worship, either before or during or after the service. we got all sorts of opportunities to serve at our church. And again, the counterintuitive part is you think, well, if I do that, I won't get the rest I need. And Jesus says, do good, and I'll give rest to your soul. So as God put his finger on your restlessness today, if he has, Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? Have you ever become united with him? You know that you've done this. You, you can say with certainty, I live in Christ. Christ lives in me today. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. In fact, I'm going to ask you across our, our four campuses, would you just bow with me in a word of prayer? If you're watching online, would you just bow in a word of prayer? In a, a few moments, we're going to sing a closing song of praise, and we're going to collect our gifts and our offering. But before we do that, I want to make sure that you've embraced, that you've responded to the rest that Christ offers. Rest from guilt, rest from insecurity, rest from emptiness, rest from vulnerability. But you've got to respond. It's RSVP. You've got to respond. So in the quietness of your heart right now, in your own words, you need to pray something like this. Jesus, I want your rest. 
Right now, I want to surrender my life to you. I know about guilt. I know about the restlessness of my sin and my sense that I'll never be able to compensate for it with enough good deeds. Can you say that honestly to God right now? Admit it. And then say, but you died on the cross. And if I surrendered my life to you, then I'm on your team, and that's credited to my account, right? So I surrender to you. From your heart, right now, just tell them in your words, I surrender to you. I want to be in you. I want you to be in me. Tell them that. And then tell them, I, I want the rest that comes from doing good. I, I want to know that now that you live in me and empower me, that I can be about the things that God has designed me to do. He's created me in Christ Jesus to do good works. I want to, I want to discover what it means to follow him. Would you pray that from your heart? Jesus, I want to follow you. And if at some point in your past you surrendered to Christ, but the, the honest-to-goodness truth is you've been trying to fill the God-shaped vacuum in your life with all sorts of other stuff recently, and it's just left you tired. And you're running about constantly. Your family is nothing but frenetic activity, but you need to come to Christ and say, forgive me, Lord, for trying to fill that vacuum with everything but you. Teach me what it means to learn more of you, to lean into you, to have more of you in my life. Maybe you've been all about the wrong activities. You've been doing all the things that just burn you out, but not the doing of good works that refreshes and brings life to your soul. God, we just repent of that. We want to turn back to our Savior, our King, and we want to learn what it means to follow him and experience his life in us. We pray in his name. Amen.